Pray with me real quick. Father, through Jesus, your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, on this Pentecost Sunday, would you pour out your Spirit upon us? Would you turn our hearts of stone to flesh? And for those with flesh hearts, Lord, would you revive and rejuvenate and remind us of your grace and gospel? Father, in Exodus, would you lead us to Jesus, our Savior, our Deliverer, the one who has brought us to you, who dwells with us, and who has given us such great glory and purpose through you and for you here in Santa Fe. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you. Amen. Well, welcome. Glad you're here this morning. Braved the tornadoes of yesterday. Kind of like to know who prayed for rain. All right, which one of you was it? Well, man, it's good. When the rain comes, even with wind, to renew the ground, we need it desperately. And I pray as we begin this new series in the book of Exodus, one that you may feel very familiar with or not, that the Lord would renew your soul, that he would remind you as we sang that he is the famous one. Exodus is an invitation to us. It's a story that's an invitation to come and see the famous one. And the power of God to deliver and to dwell, to be with you, to know you, to save you, to rescue you, whatever you're facing right now, to help you. My friend Jim sent me this this week. Comes from an email entitled, An Uncluttered Child's Mind. And I love this. I love this one. A Sunday school teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with her five and six-year-olds. After explaining the commandment to honor the father, thy father and mother, the fifth commandment, she asked the group of kids, is there a commandment that teaches us how to love our brothers and sisters? From the back, one little boy, the oldest of his family, raised his hand and answered, yeah, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Those of you with siblings probably know all about that. I was an only child, so the battle was within. But... You know, I think, I think we tend to think of the Old Testament as law, right? Law and rules and regulations and religion in, in reference to this kind of people group, this Semitic wandering group of nomads who eventually become the people of Israel. Maybe we think of the Old Testament God as the, the angry guy. Jesus is the nice one. He's political. He kisses babies. You know, occasionally he throws something over in the temple, but for the most part, he's the nice one. And we think of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, perhaps that's their story. It's historical, but it's really not our story. I think the book of Exodus confronts us along each of those lines. First of all, the Old and New Testament are testifying to the same thing. As it were in the heavenly court of law, read the prophets. They are testifying that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises to send Messiah, to send the one who can save. And not to save people who have done a great job and have earned it and deserve it, but a stiff-necked people, a weak people, a nobody sort of people that God has set his love upon and plans to save by grace. Likewise, the story of Israel isn't some random story. It's our story. Because the whole Bible is the story of creation, then fall, and then God's unfolding plan of redemption for his people which has been inaugurated at the cross and will be consummated when Christ comes again. 
And therefore, we don't have two different gods in two different testaments, one angry, one nice, but one God who is repeatedly putting his power and glory on display for the weak, the needy, and the helpless to draw people like you and me to himself. And that's why I'm excited about Exodus, because this is our, it's our story. The faithfulness of God to deliver us when we cry out to him, his patience with us as his children, his kindness to lead us to repent, it's our story too. And I think it's important to remember as we jump into Exodus that God's plan isn't merely for deliverance. I see this in my own heart. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of Christians who are like, well, you know, I got saved. I got saved back in the day. And now it's, you know, it's a struggle. And it is. I mean, for a lot of us, you know, we came to Christ. It was this kind of a mountaintop experience whenever that happened. And it's easy to kind of just get into this mundane sense of, well, yeah, I guess God saved me by grace. And now I just need to try harder. Because I'm spinning 48 plates in my life, and, you know, 32 of them are doing okay, and the other 16 are kind of a train wreck, so I'll, I'll try harder. The story of Exodus, all 40 chapters of it, aren't merely God's story of delivering, but also his desire to dwell with the people he has called to himself because he loves them. Deliver and dwell, rescue and relationship. That is the story of Exodus the story of God's faithfulness. And we need God's faithful deliverance, don't we? Because if you look at the world around you for too long, it's easy to become cynical or skeptical. It's easy to feel like, if we're not careful, God really isn't in control and madness reigns. Here's a tongue-in-cheek illustration of madness reigning. Written in parody by the German film critic Werner Herzog, he reviews Trader Joe's and he gives it five stars. Madness reigns, he says. The first challenge your soul must endure as you approach Trader Joe's is the parking lot. Dude, hallelujah and amen. Have y'all been down here? He's not even been to Santa Fe. He doesn't know the half of it. You wait with your vehicle, half-blocking traffic, creating a perfect circular vortex of anger that encompasses the street and the entrance to the store. Once you attain access to the lot, you discover that this is a false achievement. Other motorists stop and start with no apparent thought or plan. Turns once begun are quickly abandoned. The driver is seemingly immune to the basic laws of geometry. Have you experienced madness reigning like this? I have. At last, a space opens up. But the price, of course, is having to actually enter inside the store, where we find human beings scrambling about like beetles whose rock has been violently upended. He goes on, but ends this way. Be sure to get the dark chocolate peanut butter cups. They are right by the register. (laughs) Well, if madness can reign in our own lives and even in Trader Joe's parking lots, how much more seriously when we think about the things going on in the world, even right now. I know many of you have been in tune to what's happening right now in the Middle East. And I think you would agree with me that the heart cry there is just like, Lord, help. Bring peace. Bring justice. Not for one side or the other, for both of them. Can we just, can we please get something that's going to last longer than 85 seconds here? Because it just seems like there's such tension and 
hatred seems insurmountable and hopeless. It can feel that way, that madness reigns. And we're prone, of course, to look at the things outside of us, things that we read or watch in the news, things circumstantial, things that are other. Indeed, people all the way around the world. But the text turns us, of course, inward because God's desire is always to deal with our hearts. It is far too easy to go, yeah, look at that person over there. They're wrong. I'm right. Here's my list of reasons why I'm right. I feel very justified in each of these things. So, Lord, please help them. The text reminds us that our hearts are prone to wander too, to let madness reign in our own souls, to trust ourselves. You see, this is the sin of our first parents, of Adam and Eve. It, Sin, which I know to some of us sounds like a really naughty word. It's not a particular instantiation of you doing a bad thing. I mean, certainly it's breaking God's law. It's missing the mark. Things done and left undone. But really the nature of sin is that we, like Adam, like Pharaoh, we want to be our own gods. And foolishly and ironically, we think we can control the madness And so we often reject the deliverance when it comes to us, don't we? Guys, remember the old story about the guy who was, you know, the river's rising up on top of the boat and prays, Jesus help, Jesus help, you know, and the boat comes up, hop in, I'm waiting for Jesus. The helicopter comes in, I'm waiting for Jesus. Finally, the guy drowns. The Lord's like, what's the matter with you? (laughs) Guys, I was waiting for Jesus. Well, dude, I sent a boat and a helicopter and I mean, what more do you want? So often in our hearts, that's us. We don't like the deliverance. It's too big for us. Too majestic. Can't be controlled. Or perhaps sensing a threat to our own control and power, we attempt to dig our own tunnels of escape. Sadly, these escape tunnels instantly become pits of self-destruction. So it doesn't matter what you put your hope in, whether it's money or sex or applause or intellect. These are the things that if worshipped, if trusted in, if believed upon for faithfulness, will eventually eat us alive. David Foster Wallace illustrates this brilliantly in a commencement speech that he gave years ago at Kenyon University. Read this with a few of my buddies in one of our groups this week. It's from Tim Keller's book, Encounters with Jesus. David Foster Wallace puts the predicament of our hearts like this. And by the way, he's not a religious guy at all. Everybody worships. Everybody puts their faith in something they believe will be faithful. Everyone has a deliverer. The only choice we get is what we worship, who we think will be faithful, what foundation for deliverance we set our feet upon. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Indeed, you will never think you are enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always ultimately feel ugly. And when time and age start showing up, you will die one million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. 
worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fears. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll only end up feeling stupid, a fraud, an imposter, always on the verge of being found out. Keller adds, although Wallace was by no means a religious person, he understood that everyone worships. Everyone trusts in something for their deliverance, betting their lives on something or someone who will ultimately be faithful to their deepest needs. Without God, this is true. And so we are invited by the text this morning to be honest about these true things in our own souls. Where do you need to be delivered? Where do you need freedom? Where are you in bondage? Where are there chains? Where do you need God's help? Be honest. Where can you grow in trusting God's faithfulness? Where is it really hard to trust in his faithfulness? Because I kind of got this one. And ultimately, this text confronts us with some of our, our deepest fears. If we trust God, if we love him, will he be faithful? Will he help? Is he enough? Can he save? I don't know about you, but I see this all over my own life. Not only God's faithfulness to me that I'm here standing before you, how did it happen? When I was graduating from high school, I never imagined I would be standing here. And yet the Lord has been faithful to us. He's drawn us here to speak good news, the good news of the gospel. At the same time in my own life, I see all the temptations toward worshiping things that ultimately eat me alive. And ironically, the sense that I can control those things, I got this one. It's a fool's errand. So the book of Exodus, and even Exodus chapter 1, is summed up in this, that Yahweh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the true king, he will deliver his people and fulfill his promises. He will be faithful to deliver. That's the point. Exodus chapter 1 sets the stage for the whole book. He will be faithful to deliver. And in our text, we see his faithful deliverance in at least three ways. He brings blessing. His faithfulness also begets a battle. It's not easy. But ultimately, his faithfulness builds a better way. So first, we see God's faithful deliverance to them and to us in the way that he brings blessing. The text flows pretty easily. That's what's really great about preaching narrative. The first seven verses here are all about the increase of the people of Israel. But if all we do is re read over this, we might miss what's really going on here. It's not merely increase, but the blessing and the fulfillment of God's promises. First of all, these first seven verses are connected to Genesis. Remember in Genesis, God has made promises to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. Covenant promises that God has made on his own name that he cannot break. That their children will increase and grow and be a blessing to all nations. Indeed, as Abraham is walking around the ancient Near East, traveling from one campsite to the next, he could not have imagined that one day his people would be in Egypt, flourishing 
and thriving. We see God's blessing in their increase and that they are doing what God's called them to do. They are fulfilling Genesis 1.28, the cultural mandate. God says to his children, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. Take what I've given you and use it for my glory and use it for the good of the world. Make it beautiful. Go out into this garden, as some of you are doing right now in your gardens, pull out the weeds and be sort of like an eco-butler stewarding this beautiful creation to reflect my goodness and for your joy. This isn't just the context of Exodus. It's the entire Bible. God created his people. He made them good. They fell into sin. And from Genesis chapter 3, he has been promising to redeem them and bring them back to himself. He tells Adam and Eve, one is coming. One is coming who will crush the head of the serpent. And so here we find the Israelites blessed. They are growing. They are obeying. All is well. Indeed, in some of the numbers we see this reflected, the 12 tribes of Israel are there. Did you notice that? It, it, it points us to the blessing. We're told that there's 70 people. This draws us back to Genesis chapter 10, where we find the 70 nations. These folks are doing really well. They're obeying the Lord. And so we're left to wonder in this moment, is this it? Is this when God is going to come and, and overthrow his enemies finally? Is this the new garden? Is this the hope we've been waiting and longing for? Although we see God's faithful deliverance in his bringing of blessing, we also see that the faithfulness of God in obedience begets battle. How many of you guys know with me that when you put your hope and trust in Jesus, life doesn't just get instantly easy? In fact, in some ways, it gets harder. The more you see your own need and brokenness and see it out in the world, it gets more challenging. How many of you know, maybe even this last week, the reality of spiritual warfare? I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand there's seasonal allergies, okay? I take Alivert too. But we're not materialists. We believe that we are embodied souls, that there really is a spiritual realm out there, that there really is spiritual battle. And I don't know about you, but I have had plenty of times where, man, I was like doing really well, and then all of a sudden stuff just hits you. Whether it's temptation, or even more insidious, accusation, or the penultimate weapon of the devil, condemnation. You were tempted, you messed up, and rather than run to Jesus to be forgiven, you beat yourself up thinking you can earn his righteousness, and Satan comes in to attack you with condemnation. You're not loved. You're not really a child of God. You're not a Christian. I mean, if people could really see all you people, if you had like a little TV over your head of what you were really thinking, I mean, if I could see it now, half of you'd be under church discipline. And I'd be right there with you. We'd all be in jail, being tended by John Standards together. Man, you guys, the blessing and the faithfulness of God begets this real spiritual battle. And so as we're on the verge of, is the garden coming? Will Eden be rewrought and fulfilled? No, oppression. Pharaoh, a guy who loves himself and loves power and loves control and wants to maintain it at all costs, in our text has a threefold plan for shutting down the dreams of blessing the Israelites. At first, it's simply, I'm going to make them work harder. And working hard doesn't work, so now they're going to be slaves. 
Then he creates a private policy trying to work with the midwives, you know, to basically kill the firstborn sons. And by the time his wicked, heinous, evil, and oppression is all done, he has now made it a public policy, by the way, in the name of national security, to kill all the firstborn Israelite boys. His power is threatened. They'll be too many and too mighty. Now, Pharaoh has a big problem here. And his problem is that he's bald. Did you know that? I mean, I, I've thought about shaving my head a few times because they say, you know, that can add a couple years and make you look tough. And I could use a little bit of that in my life. I guarantee these midwives could have beat me up. I need all the help I can get. Why was Pharaoh bald? Some of you know the answer to this question. It wasn't just because that was the cool hairstyle of the day. I'm sure he would have loved to have been an Egyptian man bun. Doubtful. Pharaoh was bald because his shiny, glorious, perfect dome was only reflected off the beautiful golden necklace that he wore. His entire countenance, his look, the jewelry he wore and his shaved head were to reflect to everyone around him, I am God. I am the sun, I am the moon, I'm the morning and the evening star. You can Google me and fact check this. It's a real thing. Pharaoh believed that anything that threatened his control was actually a threat to the divine order of the universe. And rather than seeing increase as a blessing, he did what we so often do. He became fearful. You see, at the root of Pharaoh's sin is fear. It's his thinking that he's the one who's in control and being afraid of losing any of that control. And so the book of Exodus, as we go on to study it, is a case study in what will you worship? Will it eat you alive or will it save you? Will it be like Pharaoh, self-protection and self-justification, or like God, a sacrificial savior whose faithfulness delivers his people? We learn from this text, of course, that obedience is not easy. And we know that. The New Testament is clear about that, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. But what we also learn is that there are pharaohs within us all. That the nature of our sin is to protect ourselves. That the nature of sin is to always take and never give. That it's never enough. And that it always takes us farther than we want to go. Again, Pharaoh begins this campaign against the Israelites with being shrewd. Shrewd ends with infanticide. And so often we look around and go, well, how could it have gotten that bad in these places around the world? How could those people have all been duped and it became so horrible and so unjust? And what the Bible is telling us is that if we're not careful, that's in all of us. It's, it's only by grace that we are saved and rescued and delivered, but having been delivered, we need to daily be asking God for his help to put sin in us to death. Because if we don't, if we think we can control it and handle it, so those are the roots that grow eventually from shrewdness to death. It always takes us farther than we want to go.
God's faithful deliverance brings blessing, and it begets a real battle. We should expect that battle. We should be humbled under the weight of the reality of our own lives that we're not God. And we should be ready and willing, by God's grace and with his help, to be putting our sin to death. Well, that sounds like a lot to do in Exodus. But here's the good news, that ultimately the faithful deliverance of Yahweh builds a better way. It builds a better way. And and this is why the Old Testament always points us to Jesus. Because this text leaves us hanging. I don't know if you noticed verse 22. John and I have decided to do one chapter at a time in Exodus. We're not going to do all 40 chapters. We're going to do the first 20 chapters up to the Ten Commandments. So buckle up. Get in God's word, read it, love it, ask him how he can teach you and help you. But as we go one chapter at a time, it's a little bit difficult because this introduction, chapter one, is actually supposed to get us to Moses. Exodus one and two are really about Moses and his birth story. Moses is the one, the prophet, the priest, the king. He's the rescuer, he's the deliverer. He's the one that's gonna lead God's people out and not just lead them out but lead them into the arms of God himself. It's really supposed to be about Moses. And yet we end here in verse 22 with this third and final wicked plot, Pharaoh commanding all his people. Now it's public. Now we don't care. No more private, you know, secret guard busting into people's homes at night. Now, this is for everybody. If you see an Israelite boy that's born, you throw him into the Nile. His wickedness and his evil has become almost hyperbolic, almost too great to imagine. And although Exodus 1 and 2 are meant to lead us to Moses, we know the Moses story too. We know that Moses went out with the people and struggled and doubted, and we know that Moses struck the rock and was disobedient, and we know that Moses ultimately couldn't answer the, enter the promised land. So not only does the text leave us hanging, but the story itself leaves us hanging. No, this isn't the, the new coming of the garden. No, this isn't Messiah. This isn't God making all things new. If God's faithful deliverance is going to be more than, you know, just little moments of self-help along the way. If God's deliverance is going to be based on more than what one human being can do, then Exodus reminds us that God himself must come. And here's what I love about this story. God has plans to save in surprising ways. Not only has God drawn you and saved you in ways that are surprising, it's a miracle that any of us are here right now. But God has plans to work in and through you to be an extension of his faithfulness to this city. Not to go out like Pharaoh and yell at people and beat him over the head and, you know, scarcity and power and control. But instead, to know that the God who brings blessing, even in the battle, will be the one who builds a better way. It's all for us and fulfilled in Jesus, the God-man. And the example that we get in our text, I just love so much, is the midwives. Nothing could be more surprising. The Pharaoh isn't named, but the midwives are both named. You know what God's telling you in Exodus? Here's what he's telling you in Exodus 1. Get ready, 
because I have plans to exercise my faithfulness to save you, love you, deliver you, help you in ways that are surprising behind, beyond your wildest dreams. And the challenge of this text is for us to believe that, to trust God by faith that he will save and surprise and do it again. That even though he knows the pharaohs of your own heart, he will never let you go, leave you or forsake you. For you're his children and he wants you for himself. On Wednesday morning at the prayer meeting, one of our dear sisters, Linda, said, Exodus can be summed up in this way. I said, I love this, Linda. He brought us out to bring us in. He brought us out to bring us in. God's faithful deliverance is the same that will help us put our sin to death and remember that we are adopted into his family, given a new name, and will be kept with him forever. That's our story. That's our song. Madness will not reign. I know you read the news. I know that's challenging to believe sometimes. I know we have our own doubts and fears. But madness will not reign. Jesus reigns. Means we ultimately will not be eaten alive, but instead the faithful deliverance of God is the faithfulness that feeds us and invites us to this very table so that we can come and feast on all the promises we have just heard. His blessing, even in the battle, and through Jesus, a better way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Exodus chapter 1, that you are faithful to deliver. Lord, we know we, we can't not worship. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we also... We see where Pharaoh dwells deep as the new man and the old man continue to battle. Lord, we long for heaven. We long for that place where every tear will be wiped away and all things made new finally and forever. Until then, Lord, in this battle between flesh and spirit, would you help us to cling to your promises? Lord, we want to be a blessing to Santa Fe. Lord, we want to cling to you and not give up in the battle. And Father, ultimately, we want to be led by the hand, by Jesus, your son, who is really the fulfillment of the picture of the midwives. Unlike the midwives, Lord, we know Jesus didn't just risk his life. He laid down his life for us. So Jesus, we put all our trust in you. Thank you that you don't stand above us, you know, with shaved head and ornamentation demanding we work harder, but instead you get on your knees, you wash feet, and you invite us to your table to come and dine and feast on your promises. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.